If you have a Bible, if you turn to Luke 16, Luke chapter 16. So we're going to look the next couple weeks at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. I'm going to title the message tonight, The Great Reversal. The Great Reversal. So before we read, I want to talk a little bit about the chapter. And, you know, one thing about Christianity, Jesus' teaching should challenge us to think about what we're doing and where we're going. And so do you ever think about your goals in life, how you're conducting your everyday life, and where that's going to take you? rather than just kind of letting circumstances just lead you along wherever, and you'll end up wherever. Because our entire eternity is going to be based on, we've heard this before, but it's the truth, on choices that we make now at this time in our life, right? So our view of life, what we value, and how we live now is going to determine our eternal state. As a man once said one time in a song, determine our eternal state. And that's really the sum of what you get in all of Luke chapter 16. So at the beginning of Luke chapter 16, the point of the parable of the unjust steward is, is you need to be making wise investments with your life. Now it's talking about money, but he's talking about with what God has given us. We need to be making wise investments because there's coming a day of accountability before the Lord. And that's what happens. Look what he says in verse 2. It says, he calls this servant that he'd heard some bad things about and said unto him, how is it that I hear this of thee? And look what he says. This is going to be for all of us. Give an account of thy stewardship. And that's what we're all going to have to do one day, stand before the Lord and give an account of our stewardship, what he has given us, what blessings he's given us what we've done with all the spiritual blessings he's given us and our family and our decisions and the material things he's given us. A day of reckoning is coming. And so we should be, according to Luke 16, investing in our future and not just spending everything on ourselves now. That's the whole point of that first parable, the unjust steward. So who's Jesus speaking to in Luke 16? Who's he speaking to? He actually is speaking to two groups. So you look in verse 1, and what does it say there? He's speaking to his disciples. So through that parable of the unjust steward and through the entire paragraph, he's training, teaching, and actually warning his disciples of a possible snare. Talks a lot about money right here. But there's also another group that's listening in. Verse 14 tells us right there. And the Pharisees also, they're listening in who were covetous. They heard all these things. They got their long ear in his conversation. They're eavesdropping in on this conversation, and they're not real happy about what they're hearing because they were covetous, and he's convicting them for their lifestyle. So what's these guys' problem? What's the Pharisees' problem? It wasn't that they weren't religious because they were very religious. It wasn't that they didn't know their Bible. You can say read their Bible. Those guys knew the Bible backwards, literally backwards and forwards. It wasn't that they didn't pray because they did. It wasn't that they didn't give because they did. They did give. It wasn't that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did all of those things. Prayed, read their Bible, gave, believed in the eternal state. But the thing is, their whole thing, it was not for the value, the consequences, or for love of the Lord that they did any of those things. 
That was never their reason. But they did it to be seen, to be praised, and what they could gain from this life. That was their motivation. They wanted to be esteemed by the men of this world. They weren't too worried about what God thought about them, even though they would act that way. And so to this group, Jesus has really given them a stern warning of repentance. He is telling them, and we'll see that. That's what this parable we're going to look at is all about, is he's telling them, unless you repent, you're listening in on my conversation, fine. But unless you repent of the way you live and how you conduct yourself, you will perish. That's what he's telling them. So they believed in the resurrection and judgment day that that was going to happen. They said they believed in it, but they acted like it would never happen for them because they live like the fool of Psalm 14 who says in his heart, there is no God. They live like God didn't see or know what was going on on the inside of them. Like he didn't see their inner wickedness, their motives, or their hypocrisy. And look what it says. Jesus tells them in verse 15, after they're listening in, look what he says to them in verse 15. He said unto them, the Pharisees, you are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And so he's saying, you make yourselves great in men's eyes, but in God's eyes, when he looks down upon you, he says, you are an abomination. It's disgusting. That's what that word abomination means. Something that is detestable. So he's saying, when I see your all's hearts, despite what men see, they think you're great. And they did. They had a lot of respect in the community. But he's saying, God in heaven who can see all, when he looks at your heart, it's disgusting what he sees. It's an abomination. That's pretty strong talk he's given to these men. Tell somebody your heart is revulsive, detestable. But that's the word he uses. And so he warns earlier in Luke, he had warned his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. That's what their heart was full of. For there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, neither hid that shall not be known. And you know, it seems funny when you look at verse 18. Verse 18 almost seems like it's misplaced. It does. It's like a funny place to have a passage on divorce. He's talking about money and that they're covetous, and then all of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere, here's this passage on divorce. But you know what he's doing? He's saying, you guys twist the word of God. That's what he's telling them. You twist the word of God, it, you can make it to where it will let you divorce and remarry at will. And you'll use the scriptures to justify, use it as a cloak to justify what you're doing. And so right here, he says, uh-uh. I'm going to give you God's word, and I'm going to take all your exceptions away. You divorce and marry somebody else, you are in adultery. You marry somebody that's divorced, you're an adulterer. And he's telling them that. He's saying, you all do what you do. You twist these scriptures to get the praise of men. But he says, I'm going to expose your heart right here. You're a bunch of adulterers. You do what you do to justify your lust. And he's talking pretty direct to him at this point. And look back in verses 13 to 14. He, this is what got him upset. He says, no man, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon doesn't just mean money. It means all the pleasures that this world has to offer that money can buy. And he says, and the Pharisees also who were covetous, 
That's the Holy Spirit said, verse 13, through the Lord Jesus Christ, and who they were covetous, and they heard all these things, and it made them mad. It says they derided him. And that's what the Word of God will do. It doesn't always make everybody happy, does it? Everybody's not always smiling when the Word of God comes forth because when it trips that wire in your heart that tells you you are the one that he's talking about right here, it's like one man said, it's either going to make you glad, sad, or mad, but it isn't going to leave you alone. And so these guys, they're hot that he's coming on them like that. And he's like getting on them because he's exposing them. He says, you, you say, dedicate your money to the temple and to the service of God, and he'll bless you. And he's like, you all just take those scriptures and twist them to fulfill your lust for money and things. And he's exposing them here because he says, mammon gives you position and power and you like it. And it has a voice that you listen to. And he's saying, you believe its promises. And you'll do whatever you have to do to get it. And that's what they did. If that meant cheating widows, they didn't care. They'd do it. Because they were after money was their God. And they're going to do whatever they have to to serve that God and get that God. And that's the way it is. Because when you serve God, he says you can't serve God in money. When you serve God, God will have you do crazy things with your money, won't he? Sometimes he'll have you give your last dollar away when it doesn't make sense to do that. He'll tell you you got to let people rip you off when they can't pay you back. Lend money to people that can't pay you back. Well, that's not good business sense, is it? It really isn't. So... <laughs> that's the way he'll test us. But those guys wouldn't have done anything like that. What we're reading here in Luke 16, Jesus is telling us life, our life is a stewardship from God that one day we will all be called to account for. That's the point of this. And if you would just turn back just a couple chapters to Luke 12. He talks a lot about money in Luke saying life is a stewardship that God's going to call us account for. And we've read this, but I'd like to read it again. So Luke 12, beginning in verse 15, and he said unto them, it's a warning to us and to his disciples, take heed and beware of covetousness because it's a major problem for a man's life doesn't consist in all the abundance of the things which he possesses. And he spake a parable unto them saying, the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do? Because I have no room where to bestow my fruits. And he said, This will I do. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said unto him, You're a fool. This night your soul is going to be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I mean, that is going to go right along with what we're going to talk about the rest of the night. So we're going to be called an account to what we do when he blesses us. What do we do with it? What is our first thought, to bless ourselves or to bless others? And we'll talk about that. So let's go back to Luke 16, if you would. And we're going to read our parable, or story. I mean, it's debatable on whether it's even a parable. Some think it's a true story. But regardless, verse 19, Luke 16, 19, it says, There was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus which was laid at his gate full of sores and desiring to be fed with crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. 
And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Oh, no, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto him, If they won't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. So let's go back to verse 19. And what we have here is we get two extreme contrasts in life is what we have here. So first of all, in verse 19, it says this certain rich man was clothed in purple. Now, those purple clothes came from a dye that was extracted from snails, and it was extremely expensive. And so people that wore purple clothes like that, it represented that they had power and prestige. Because only people with money and power and prestige could afford to wear clothes like that. And that fine linen was made from a special species of flax. What it was, it was the rich people's underwear, more or less, if you want to put it that way. That's what it was, fine linen. And it says that that man fared sumptuously every day. The New American Standard says he joyously lived in splendor. The NIV says he lived in luxury every day. Not just sometimes, not just when he had a bumper crop. Every day he lived an extravagant lifestyle. And all the time, who is he thinking about when the way he's living and what he's going to do every day? Himself. Everything is geared towards self. And speaking of a man that everything's geared towards self, Donald Trump, I hate to keep bringing him up, but he just fits. He's got the best illustrations, right? So several years ago, he got him a brand new private jet plane, Mr. Trump did. Talk about living extravagantly. That plane comes equipped with a dining room, a main lounge, a VIP area, a guest bedroom, as well as Trump's personal master bedroom and bathroom. It's got Rolls-Royce engine, and 43 people can ride that plane. What else would you expect from the Donald, as they say, right? You know what else he's got? He doesn't just have seatbelts like me and you do. They're 24-karat gold-plated seatbelts. <laughs> Each seat has got an audio-visual system. Now, if you want the big screen, you can go into this room where it's got a 57-inch TV with a state-of-the-art sound system. That's what happens if you ride with him. So also, <laughs> he's got a wood-wrapped guest room with a home theater system, a mohair couch that converts into a full-size bed. In Donald's master bedroom, he has walls lined with gold silk 
on his master bedroom walls, a custom headboards, pillows adorned with the Trump crest, and a personal theater. That's what he's got in his bedroom. No tiny airplane toilets here, it says. The master bedroom is outfitted with a shower, and what else? A 24-karat gold-plated sink. Could you imagine? I think he kind of fits the description here, right? <laughs> I think every day when that man flies, he's flying in luxury. <laughs> so we have that man here, this rich man, clothed in purple and fine linen, fair and sumptuously every day, and we have that contrasted with what we have here in verse 20. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus. We usually think of a beggar as someone that literally is begging all the time, but that word means he may or may not have begged. But what it does mean is he was dependent on other people to help him live and survive. He couldn't do it himself. The name Lazarus means God helps. So he was somebody that was dependent on God. That's what his name means. And it says he was laid at the gate. In verse 20 it says he was laid at the gate full of sores. So he couldn't walk. He's like the lame man in Acts chapter 3. And that gate wasn't just like one of our driveways. It was this big extravagant entranceway like you would have seen at a temple. And they laid him at that gate every day. And it says he was full of sores, ulcers, ulcerated sores, abscesses over his entire body on the surface of his body. And it was very painful for him. So it says in verse 21 that he desired to be fed just with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's tables. And those crumbs, it just means little morsels, just little pieces of food. And that word for desire is not just like he kind of was hungry. It's like a strong desire. So this man is starving. And all he wants is the crumbs that are falling from that rich man's tables. And then it says that even the dogs came and licked his sores. And I'm telling you, a dog's tongue is not smooth. It's rough, and those ulcerated sores on him are tender, and they can't get away from that dog. That dog's coming up to lick him, and he can't go anywhere to get away from him. And that dog's coming up, that is, had to hurt. And in that culture, unlike our cultures where people have their dogs sleep with them, dogs were considered nasty. <laughs> they were considered unclean. Something to think about. <laughs> but the rabbis had a saying that there are three situations that if you're in them, you have no life. Three situations. They said if you're in these situations, you do not have a life, no life. And one was if you had to depend on food from somebody else's table. That was one. Another is if you were ruled by your own wife, you had no life. And the other was one whose body was full of sores. Those three things. And guess what? Our friend Lazarus, two out of three, he qualified for there. And this man wrote, his situation was as desperate and tragic, just the other end of the scale, as the rich man's was full and sumptuous. So you got two totally contrasting people that he's bringing out here in this parable. So you got to get the picture. Here's this rich man. He is wearing the finest money can buy, outerwear and underwear. And Lazarus, you know what his covering is, what we're reading here? It's not that. It's ulcers. He doesn't have a nice clothes to wear. He doesn't have expensive silk touching him. He's got a dog's tongue, an old nasty dog's tongue is what he's got on his skin, not silk, not the purple. And this man has got so much to eat, food's just falling off of him onto the floor. 
And this beggar, it says, all he wants is just a crumb, just anything. He is starving to death. And so his friends, they're like, hey, this guy can't walk, and this man claims to be righteous that lives in this house. We'll take him to his gate. Surely he's got more than enough. He'll help our friend Lazarus. And they lay him at that gate. Just wants a small morsel, and he's laying out there every day, and he can hear this man and his friends every day eating, laughing. He can hear the silverware, the plates clanging, right? Smell the food every day, and he's getting nothing. Nothing's coming his way. And it says that rich man and his friends laid at his gate, which means they would have been passing by, seeing him laying there every single day and doing nothing to help him out. They probably looked at him and said, that poor cripple, but if we help him, there'll be a whole colony of them here hanging out at our gate, you know, so just looking for handouts. And they would look at him and they would say, that's just where a life of sin will lead you to. That's what their attitude would have been. Now, we wouldn't look at somebody necessarily that way, but I don't know, do we? When you go to a football game or a baseball game and there's these beggars sitting there, what do you think about those people? They got issues. They got problems. I don't, you know, I don't really want anything to do with them. And some of them are begging that they don't really need help like they act like they do, right? But here's what the Pharisees believe. We've got to put ourselves, Jesus is telling this story, we've got to put ourselves in their shoes as he's telling it because they believe that rich people, like this rich man, when they're hearing that, they would have thought, oh, yeah, he's blessed because they would think Abraham, Isaac, David, and Solomon they were all rich men, blessed by God. And this man's just following right along that line. And doesn't Deuteronomy 28 say these blessings will come upon thee and overtake thee? And that's all he's got. They'd be like, yeah, that's fine. And they looked at the poor as being cursed. So we know that from John 9. Well, who's, here's this guy, he's blind and begging. And Well, who sinned? This man, or he had to sin, or this wouldn't have happened to him, right? In Luke 15, they looked at all the, the heathens and the publicans and sinners as outcasts. They didn't want anything to do with him. And they would have said, there, look, Deuteronomy 28, he's under a curse, obviously. He's laid here, dogs licking, he's full of sores. He's got all the curses of Deuteronomy 28. God's cursed him. Why do we want to help him out? And they also would have thought, they're going to heaven. They would have thought this man is going to heaven as Jesus is telling this story where we're at right now. He's rich, God is blessing him, and he's on his way to the kingdom. It's evident by the way it is. And they would have assumed, like I said, that poor Lazarus and other sinners, they're just getting their dues. There's something not right with them. They didn't deserve any more than what they got. So let me ask you, what would a faithful Israelite think that's just barely scraping by to make ends meet? What would they think of when they hear a story about Ahab, that he comes and takes the one thing Naboth had his vineyard, and he kills him, and yet he still seems to prosper. They had to be thinking, is there no justice for those that live selfish lives? Like, that doesn't make sense. If there's a just God, that the, the rich can treat the poor this way and can live this way, and yet we're faithful to the Lord and we have nothing. They would have had to have struggled with that. But listen, God has said there's consequences to everything we do, hasn't he? Ultimately, there will be consequences. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by someone that seems like he's prospering outwardly, but you know, really, they really don't walk that close to the Lord. They do a lot of things ethically in their business that I wouldn't do. And yet, I live an ethical life, and people take advantage of me. seems like I can never get ahead. I'm struggling all the time. Hey, it says, 
Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. For he that sows to the flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. But sometimes it does seem that way, right? The wicked prosper and they oppress the poor. Where is the justice of God? Well, there's a book I had to read for school that I'd always heard about it all my life. I never had read it. But I would recommend anybody that wants to read a good book, read Uncle Tom's Cabin. And it's about that thick, but you can read it pretty quick because it's actually very well written and it's very interesting. And it has to do with Christianity. I never knew that. I didn't know what it was about till I read it. But there was a slave in that story, his name was George Harris, who was a slave to a relatively nice family of slave owners. They treated their slaves well, but they eventually had to sell them. But he's just observing as a slave the injustice that these people that call themselves Christians, and they're all doing well, but they could sit there and sell and break up these slave families and have children go in one direction and parents go in another direction and breaking up homes. And he's scratching his head about all that. Where is the justice in that? And listen to what he said. Is God on their side? Said George, speaking less to his wife than pouring out his own bitter thoughts. Does he see all they do? Why does he let such things happen? And they tell us that the Bible is on their side, speaking of the rich slave owners. Certainly all the power is. They're rich and healthy and happy. They are members of churches expecting to go to heaven. And they get along so easy in the world and have it all their own way. And poor, honest, faithful Christians, Christians as good or better than they, are lying in the very dust under their feet. They buy them and sell them and make trade of their heart's blood and groans and tears. And he says, and God lets them. That's the way it seemed to be from his perspective. And we have the same thing that takes place in the Old Testament. Psalm 73, if you would turn there, put something in Luke 16. Because the psalmist is wrestling with the same thing this slave is. And maybe sometimes you do. Why am I always in trials? Why do everything not seem to go well for me, but others it seems to go well for? In Psalm 73, it says this. Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. He said, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasses them about as a chain. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than the heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks through the earth. Therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out on them. And they say, just like Lazarus would have said, How does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world, and they increase in riches. And maybe Lazarus had to deal with this. Verse 13, Truly I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then he says, I understood their end. 
because surely you did set them in slippery places. You cast them down into destruction. How are they brought unto desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. The great reversal we're talking about here. As a dream when one awakes, so, O Lord, when you awake, you shall despise their image. And thus my heart was grieved, and I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was a beast before thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with counsel, and afterwards receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee, they will perish. You have destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all thy works. Everyone's doing pretty well in here now. Compared to the rest of the world, everybody in this room is doing great. But what happens when persecution comes and all of a sudden we don't have jobs and all of a sudden things aren't going quite, quite as well? Are we going to be envying the prosper and compromise so we can get our way? Or are we going to say, it doesn't matter, God is my portion. That's what the psalmist said here. He'll take care of me. And he will, won't he? He really will. So the idea that there's no consequences to actions is what hardens sinners in their sin. Because Ecclesiastes 8 says this, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. So just because judgment doesn't happen right away, just because that lightning doesn't strike you with the first time you blaspheme God, doesn't mean it's going to end up well. He says, even though a sinner do evil a hundred times and his days be prolonged, yet surely... I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him, but it shall not be well with the wicked. Neither shall he prolong his days, which are as a shadow, because he befears not before God. So he's saying there is going to come a judgment day, a time of reckoning at some point. And that's what we have in this parable. Because that's what we have if you go back to Luke 16. He talks about their lives and where they're at. Certain rich man clothed, talks about his life, fared sumptuously every day. That beggar Lazarus, full of sores, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. You get a few verses about their life here. But look, you got the rest of the chapter is dealing with the hereafter. Because look at verse 22. It came to pass. And what's that telling us? There is a payday for everybody, isn't there? Everybody is going to experience it came to pass. The vapor will pass. The good times, the meals, the work, the mowing the grass, all your troubles, worries, friends, vacation, shopping. One day, it's all going to happen where it came to pass. That is all in the rearview mirror. We don't know when that is, but it's going to happen for every single person in this room. All things are behind and death has come. And it came to pass, it says, the beggar died and was carried by the angels. And I'm telling you, at this point, if you were a Pharisee listening to this story, so we, we're all so familiar with these stories, there's no shock effect to us, and we don't live in that culture, so there's no shock effect for us. But if you were a Pharisee hearing this story at this point, you would have been greatly offended. 
that you're saying the angels are carrying this beggar into heaven. That would have offended them. It says the, the Sadducees, they say there's no resurrection, neither angels nor, nor spirit. But guess what? The Pharisees believed in all of that. It said they confessed all of those. And so there is no way a Pharisee would have thought that an angel or angels would have come and taken that beggar away. Poor Lazarus. They would have assumed that was going to happen to the rich man. And so that, right at this point, they're like, what are you talking about? And Jesus went on in verse 22 and said, The beggar died, was carried into Abraham's bosom, but it says the rich man died and was buried. And so why does it say about him that he was buried? Because in that culture back then, if you weren't buried, you were left unburied, it would have meant that he was wandering around in torments. So his friends would have made sure he was buried and had a great burial and probably a lot of lamentation. He received all that on this side. A great ceremony. But then comes the great reversal, which is what we're talking about. And that's in verse 23. So all it says in verse 22, they both died. One was carried by the angels and the other was buried. But then it talks about the rich man in verse 23. And it says, and in hell, he lifted up his eyes. And the Pharisees would have been like, why? How could that be? What has this guy done? When they're hearing his story, is it a sin? They would have been like scratching their heads. Are you trying to tell us now, Jesus, that it's a sin to be rich? Well, let me ask you, was it that the rich man was rich, that he was judged? Was that the problem with that guy? I don't think so. Because the judgment didn't come for being rich. The judgment came for not sharing his riches. John Calvin said this about this. It says, when it is said that he is tormented in hell because he had received his good things in his lifetime, we must not understand the meaning to be that eternal destruction awaits all who have enjoyed prosperity in the world. He said, on the contrary, as Augustine has judiciously observed, poor Lazarus was carried to the bosom of rich Abraham to inform us that riches do not shut any against the many gates of the kingdom of heaven, but it is open to all who have made either sober use of riches or patiently endured the want of them. In other words, he's got poor Lazarus the beggar going to rich Abraham to show that being rich or being poor is not going to keep you out of heaven. There are people in countries in this world now, they cannot get out of that poverty cycle. I mean, the prosperity message is not going to necessarily deliver them from that. God will supply all of their needs. Those promises are still true. But they can't just quit and go get a job and do whatever they want to like we can here in America. And what does the Bible talk about? The poor in this world who are rich in faith. So we can't look down on people that don't have a lot of stuff. And so what if somebody, I mean, they're a trash collector. That's just where they're at and they're happy and they're serving God as a trash collector. And he drives an older car. Are we supposed to think he has no faith and favor with God? Is that right? That is not right. Yes, everyone could trust God to supply their needs, but that's what we're seeing here. And Calvin went on to say, all that is meant is that the rich man who yielded to the allurements of the present life abandoned himself entirely to earthly enjoyments. That was the sin that did him in. He abandoned himself to earthly enjoyments. And do we do that? Have we given ourselves to that? 
And he despised God and his kingdom, and now he suffers the punishment of his own neglect. That's what sent him to hell. Not that he had riches. Because look, look over in 1 Timothy 6. And let's see what it says about rich people there. 1 Timothy 6 says this. Verses 17 to 19, 1 Timothy 6, it says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. And then in verse 18, he says this is what they should do with their riches. He doesn't say that's going to send them to hell. He says that they do good, that they be rich in good works, that they're ready to distribute, willing to help people out, willing to communicate. And look what he says in verse 19. They're, we talked about they need, we need to invest what we have in this life for the next life. That's what they would be doing, laying up in store for themselves a good foundation against the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. So it wasn't because the rich man, even back the first parable we read in Luke 12, it wasn't because that guy had a bumper crop that he was judged. Do we understand that? It's what he did with it. Because Deuteronomy 28 is still true. God's blessing should be on a person's life and their work. They should be enjoying prosperity in the sense that he blesses the work of their hands at whatever level they're at. So that's not the sin, is it? That's not the problem. It's what you do with that money. Because the rich man just thought about himself. He just went right by a need that was laid right at his door. Went right by it every single day. Ignored an obvious need that was right there. So we talked about this in Ephesians where it says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good. Why? God will bless you if your heart says that he may have to give to him that needs. And we've talked about that. What is your first thought when God starts to prosper your business? Is it what can I do? My bigger barns, my bigger house, my bigger whatever? Or is it who can I help? Because you can't think, man, I worked hard for this money and I'm going to be the one to enjoy it. Nobody else is going to enjoy this first. That can't be our attitude, right? So it says he lifted up his eyes back in Luke 6 and he was in torments. And that is not good. <laughs> it's torture, really. It's, a, it's speaking of a device that's used to just torture somebody. I mean, hell is not pretty. It is not going to be pretty at all. And so what we need to see is God will send people to hell for being self-centered. Now, we hear about Sodom and Gomorrah, don't we? And what do we normally think is the reason that that judgment came on Sodom and Gomorrah? Typically, we think it's because they were homosexuals, right? Don't we? Well, there's something that leads to homosexuality that was really the root of their sin and the root of their problem. So turn back to Ezekiel 16, and we'll see that, because this is really a picture of America. Ezekiel 16. This is interesting. Ezekiel 16, verse 49, says this. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. And look what it says. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her and her daughters, and neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. And they were haughty, verse 50, and committed abomination before me. 
Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. Sodomy was their great crime, but it was just the ultimate fruit of a self-centered life, wasn't it? Because it said their pride and the abundance of what they had led to their abomination. And isn't that what happened? What happened to America? That homosexuality, was that what came first in our country? That's like the blossom or the fruit of our abundance and our idleness and this disregard for God, this pride. That's really the root of our problem, the root of our sin in this nation. So yeah, we'll be judged for that homosexuality, but that is like the final straw. That's like the person that's totally turned their back on God, as it says in Romans. So if you turn back to Deuteronomy 8, we'll see that God knows abundance is going to ruin most people. And so he gives us a warning back then. Deuteronomy 8 says this, beginning in verse 11. He tells Israel, because he knows they were coming into a plentiful land. Deuteronomy 8:11 says, Beware that you forget not the Lord thy God, and not keeping his commandments and his judgments and his statutes, which I command thee this day, lest when you have eaten and are full, and has built goodly houses and dwelt therein, and when thy herds and thy flocks multiply, and thy silver and thy gold is multiplied, and all that thy has is multiplied, that then thy heart be lifted up, and you forget the Lord thy God, which brought thee forth out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage, who led thee through the great and terrible wilderness, wherein were fiery serpents and scorpions in drought, where there was no water, who brought thee forth water out of the rock of flint, who fed thee in the wilderness with manna, which thy fathers knew not, that he might humble thee, that he might prove thee to do thee good at thy latter end. And you say in your heart, My power in the might of my hand has gotten me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord thy God, for it is he that gives you power to get wealth, that he may establish his covenant, which he swear unto thy fathers as it is this day. And it shall be, if thou wilt at all forget the Lord thy God and walk after other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. As the nations which the Lord destroyed before your face, so shall ye perish, because you would not be obedient unto the voice of the Lord your God. And sometimes, don't we have to wonder, you know, <laughs> back when I first came to this church, there was a lot of people didn't have work, and I mean, we were on our face, trusting the Lord. And I'll tell you, we had Thursday night prayer meeting. Everybody came. And most guys were fasting on that day when they came, because we were desperate. And that's what he's saying, hey, out in the wilderness, those people are desperate. Seeking God, we just need our daily bread. I did. Man, I moved here. Here's time. I had no job. I got my electricity shut off, and I'm looking to the Lord. It's serious times. And you're walking through trials. God is in your mind all day long. You see Brother Terry driving down the road. Praise the Lord, brother. I mean, that's the way we were. And we talk about the Lord when we drive around and when we work. And now that we're all doing so well, have we forgotten that? That's what he's talking about here is the abundance caused us not to put God foremost in our thoughts every day and in our prayer life. Our prayer meeting should still be packed out, just like it was then. Because all we do is pray for the needs of this church. That's not important. I think it's important. I think people should come if they don't have a good reason. Honestly, that's what I think. I'm not going to talk to you if you don't, but that's what I think. So selfishness, this self-centered life, where it's all centered on me and my family. Or me. That's what's going to condemn man. 
Listen to what this man said. The God people speak about today, if he exists at all, is only for man's benefit. His purpose first, it seems, is to supply our needs, to provide for our happiness. God is a heavenly bellboy. When he is needed, you ring for him. And when you don't need him any longer, you tell him to go away. The first answer of the shorter catechism has been rewritten to read, God's chief end is to satisfy man and to provide for him forever. And I think that's the way our theologies become in a lot of ways. God exists to make us happy. There is no sense of his holiness, awesomeness, or majesty. He is seen as a puppet who stays in a box until we press the switch to let him out. Now, I think that's pretty insightful. Is that the way our God is to us? His holiness, his awesomeness, and his majesty. I mean, you're only going to experience that when you spend time praying and getting in the word and spending time before him in quiet moments. And that's really hard to do. So when they asked Jesus what the greatest commandment was, what was his answer to them? You shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, all thy mind. He said that is the first and great commandment, and it still is. And he said the second is like unto it. So we're saying, what's going on here with this parable? What's he talking about? What's a life of selfishness expose this rich man? Because the second is like to it. He says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Did he not? So why did he say it is like unto it because that's the only way we can demonstrate how we love God isn't it is how we treat others where we put them do we pass by them like they pass by that poor man that's how you know your salvation John said this in first John hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us he didn't pass us by did he really didn't he didn't pass us by at all. Laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso has this world's good and sees his brother have need and shuts up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwells the love of God in him? So did that rich man see a need? I think he did. Did he shut up his bowels of compassion? I don't think he had any bowels of compassion. That's the point of the story. Because Jesus, at this point, he's talking to these Pharisees. Saying, this is you guys. No bowels of compassion. Your heart's never been changed. You're looking only for the praise of men. You only do things out of duty. It's not really in your heart. That heart change has got to take place because he's telling them, otherwise you will have the great reversal that's experienced by this man. It's a warning to us, but it shouldn't be the case for us here. And we've got a lot of people in here that are not like that at all. And it's a good sign you're saved. That's what John is saying. He went on to say, if a man say, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he that loves not his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this is the commandment which we have from him, that he who loves God will love his brother also. So let me just ask you, do you have to be rich to show love to your brother? Do you? Do you have to be like that rich man where you just got all this money flowing out of your pockets and you can just start throwing $10 bills down the aisle when you walk into church? Everybody's scurrying around to get them. Is that what has to happen? Well, turn to one last scripture, if you would. Turn to Matthew 25. It's another familiar passage, but 
We just need to be reminded. It's all familiar to, to some degree, isn't it? If it's not familiar, then somebody's doing something wrong. <laughs> I'll be checking out what version is being read from. But Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31, it says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. And then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Now ask me what we read here in verse 35 on, if you have to have a lot of money to do this, okay? For I was hungry, and you gave me meat or food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. And then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? And when saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked or clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Truly I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. And so that would have been Lazarus, wouldn't it? The one that the Pharisees thought was under a curse. He really wasn't. That was the Lord there. And ministering to him would have been ministering to the Lord Jesus Christ. And the guys missed it. They thought he's a beggar, and that was the king they're passing by every day. They could have ministered to the king. And man, would that have paid off in the end. And instead, they pass him by every day. But the great reversal happened, didn't it? When they died, the angels came and took that beggar away then. What a way to go. The rich man, the next thing we read about him is he lifted up his eyes in torment. He's warning us. It's a warning to us, isn't it? Of how we should live, not to live in this world for ourselves, but we should be concerned about the needs of others. Like we talked about that one Sunday about the Good Samaritan. We don't want to be those that pass by on the other side. That's a good sign. God has not changed your heart. And if that's the case tonight, let him change your heart. Give your life to him. So you have a true concern and compassion for others. So what about in our assembly here? How is this speaking to us in our assembly here? Paul wrote this in Philippians. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than themselves. And is this not what we're talking about? He said, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. And let this mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Made himself of no account to help us out. Was willing to die on that cross naked and in pain and in agony. He didn't pass us by. gave us everything he had. So I would just say in closing... Don't pass by somebody that you see has a need when you have the material need to meet it. Don't pass by that person that you see and you know needs prayer. And there are a lot of people in our church right now that need prayer. Or don't pass by that person that you know needs encouragement. Or that person that's out in the world that you think, man, I don't know about witnessing to them, but if you tried, you'd find out, hey, God opened the door. And there's a person that needs salvation, and that is the biggest need, isn't it? It's the biggest need anybody has.
Because otherwise, there may be a great reversal waiting for you to live a selfish life. And ask that rich man if he wouldn't have to do all over again because where he was at, all hope was gone. And he realized that all of his investments and all of them were geared towards himself. They all went bad. They all went south in the end, didn't they? And he wished he could get some relief, but he was denied. It's too late. So that's why Jesus is telling us this. We need to be wise as serpents, don't we? We need to be thinking people and not just meandering through life. And every day, ah, well, how am I going to deal? You know, you just got this short vision. We need to say, what am I doing? How am I investing in this kingdom? Simplify our lives. Jesus is presenting a pretty simple parable here, isn't he? And our lives are just way too complicated. They don't have to be. But when you spend time in prayer and reading the Word, that makes a lot less time for a whole lot of other things, right? But it's simple. So let's learn from this man. Let's be wise as serpents. And let us live our lives so that when we die, because we all will, it will come to pass for all of us. We can expect that those angels are going to be the ones taking us away. Right, Mrs. Wilder? That's what she's expecting. That's what I'm expecting for so let's just pray that God can show us how we, in a daily way, can manifest the love of Jesus in whatever way that is. Amen? All right. Amen. Now let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for this story that you've given us here and shown us and warned us, Lord. We just ask that you will all take that as a warning that to live a selfish life is not the life that you've ordained for a spirit-filled Christian with a changed heart. And I just ask, Lord, you'll put it in all of our hearts to look for needs to meet as you lead us to do that and that we're investing in the future when we do that. And we're not just investing all of our lives for the here and now and what we can get out of it. And I just ask you'll convict all of our hearts that way. And, Lord, you'll cause us all to return to putting you first in our life, that Jesus will be on our mind all day long, Lord, and that we're living our lives, everything we do, everything we say, every moment we live, we're praying and looking to him that as we walk through this life, we can glorify him and one day stand before him, not in torments, but that he will look at us and we will look at him and he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. And that's our hope and that's our expectation, Lord, and we just ask that you'll do that for everyone in here. You'll do that tonight and put that in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.